Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Fit Body Happy Joints. My name is Shannon. Today, we're talking about blood sugar and insulin resistance. I've talked about this on the show before, but what I haven't leaned into so much is the food component of managing your blood sugar and improving your insulin resistance or improving your insulin sensitivity. There's a huge food component to this, and I like to stay in my lane. My formal education is in fitness not in nutrition. And I like to leave the nutrition up to the experts because in my opinion, it's a science. It's not an opinion. (laughs) Nutrition is a science. And I think that you should have formal education and lots of experience in order to be an authority on this topic. So I brought an authority on Catherine Andrew, who is a registered dietitian. She has over 15 years of experience working with women on this specific topic. And so she explains things in such an excellent way. She has been on the podcast multiple times before. She has courses on the Evlo membership, and she explains blood sugar and insulin resistance better than I've ever heard it before. We talk about why insulin resistance happens, and it can be a spectrum, why insulin resistance isn't necessarily only in overweight people, how insulin resistance and blood sugar can affect your fitness results. We talk about how it can affect your mood and your energy, and then we end by talking about what you can do to improve your blood sugar levels, your insulin sensitivity. So without further ado, here is Catherine. Okay, Catherine, let's get started with just, I want you to explain what is blood sugar and insulin. If they've listened to the podcast, I have talked about, you know, insulin, insulin sensitivity a little bit, but I still think it's kind of this confusing, nebulous term. So can you tell us what insulin is and what blood sugar is? Yes, I think you're really right, Shannon. There's like all all kinds of language that's used around blood sugar and glucose and insulin. And I think we all kind of like inflammation don't really understand what it means, but sort of think we do. And that can be really dangerous. So when we talk about blood sugar, I would say the first thing I would say is that all food with carbohydrates. So all food gets broken down into small parts, right? And any carbohydrate is going to get broken down into different types of sugars or what we call generally in the health industry, glucose, right? So all of these little glucose molecules are floating around in the digestive tract. This gets absorbed into the bloodstream. And now we consider this blood sugar, right? So the amount of glucose in your bloodstream is what we think of as blood sugar. When that happens, the pancreas, that organ, the pancreas is an organ, is alerted to release insulin. So the pancreas makes and releases insulin when your body indicates that the sugar in your bloodstream is higher. And insulin, there's a ton of of analogies. I'm often trying to come up with new analogies, but we often think of insulin as a gatekeeper or a bouncer. So insulin is what is responsible for helping get that blood sugar, that blood glucose into the cells. So think of cells all over your body, cells in your organs, cells in different places of your body. And that glucose is energy, that glucose is fuel, and insulin is there to help get that glucose into the cells. So insulin signals the liver anytime the blood glucose is low to say like, hey, we need we need to use, we need more sugar or vice versa. We've got plenty. We're going to have you store it. Once the blood glucose is in the cells, obviously the the amount that's in the bloodstream decreases. Insulin goes down, which is a healthy thing. And then that lower insulin level at some point tells the 
the pancreas to release more blood sugar. So it's a back and forth conversation between the, the amount of glucose in your bloodstream, that amount of glucose that's getting into your cells, and then insulin being a key player because it's really responsible for letting insulin or letting glucose, sorry, into the cells from the bloodstream. So we need insulin to be super responsive. We need insulin to be like on its game to actually help get that glucose from the bloodstream into the the organs and the cells. Does that make sense? Totally. That was like the most simplified way I've heard anyone ever describe it, which is (laughs) amazing. And we're going to talk all about insulin resistance and how things can go wrong. But before we do, you mentioned that when when blood sugar is low, the liver releases stored glucose so that the body can use that. Now, right. does your where where does fat come in? When does your body use stored fat? And is that does all of that happen because you haven't eaten in a long time? Like if you're fasted or overnight or whatever, when when does all of that happen? And when is your body using stored glucose in the liver versus using fat stores? So I think that's a that's a big question that's still being researched as far as like what the triggers are for your body to tap into fat stores versus to tap into the liver. We know that when, you know, by textbook, we'll say that when that blood sugar is low, then yes, the liver is storing glucose. So I should start a little bit before that, that when blood sugar is too high repeatedly, then your body will actually store glucose in the liver. It's called, and it's stored as glycogen, right? That's the storage form of glucose. And then we also know that there's a, a tipping point at some to some extent when there's so much glucose that that glycogen gets converted into fat. And that's where we, if we were going to go down the path of talking about fatty liver disease, right? So you can actually have, and that's that's a misnomer in some ways, but you can have glucose that's turned into fat when it's when it's excessive too often, right? So when it's around too much, that can store that. And then similarly, when everything is too low, that's when your pancreas then is alerted to re-release or basically tell the liver, hey, liver, we need some of that stored glucose. So we need you to pull it out and help us. And then it can also pull glucose from different parts of the body. So kind of a uh, confusing, probably best way to say it. Such a, you know, conversation around why and when your body taps into liver stores versus when it taps into fat stores. Generally speaking, when when the liver is tapped out, so when all of that stored glycogen has been used, and this can happen more chronically, but a lot of times we think about it with like long distance runners, for example, if they've used all of their stored sugar, their stored glycogen, then they're going to tap into fat stores, which is why you think of like a long distance runner having a particularly lean body type, right? Because they're constantly burning through those stored fat sources of glycogen or or sorry, of sugar as well. Does that make sense? That answer your question? Makes total sense. And I think, you know, it also depends on the, from what I understand, it depends on the activity that you're doing. So if you are low on blood sugar, um, and you're doing a higher an activity that requires more use of your muscles, like a higher intensity activity or r- like running or whatever it may be, your body wants to use glycogen. So it'll pull that from the liver. And when you're doing a lower level activity that requires less kind of um, fuel or less readily available fuel like glucose, that's when you use your fat stores instead. Um, that's absolutely that- true. Yes. Yeah. You hit that nail on the head. So that's right as well. Um, so definitely like that's where I mentioned one instance, right? But there's other situations for sure where you would tap into the fat stores versus the liver stores. But 
most of the time we think of like, you don't tap into those fat stores until you've gone through everything in the liver. So what the stimulus is for that, whether it's like high intensity, quick and fast or long term, there's different reasons, um, as well as just, I would say, body body type, family history, right? Some other factors, how much glucose is in the bloodstream. So there's probably a number of other factors and triggers that would affect those those storage forms as well and when you're using those. Yes. And I think maybe a question that might come to people's mind is this mean like the whole like six small meals a day thing, does that keep blood sugar in your um does that keep your body from using those stored um, glycogen levels and or fat if you're like eating constantly? It certainly can. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the suggestions that I, you know, was going to talk about later in the conversation is not eating too frequently. Partly if you just, if you think about if you're, if your blood glucose is constantly high, then yeah, your body's never going to tap into storage units as well. We'll talk about this in a second. You might be prepping us for our next question. Then insulin is just going to stay high, which is where a lot of the problems come from. Not There's definitely problems with glucose being high, but certainly with insulin as well. And we don't want your body to constantly be having to manage that amount of glucose in the bloodstream. So that's an important thing to talk about too, is that we want your body's constantly trying for everything. I mean, all different systems, but to keep it neutral, right? It wants to keep just the right amount in your bloodstream so that it can be used or stored, but not too much or too little. And that's where, you know, it's when we think about eating six small meals a day, it's hard to know, but your blood sugar is probably going up and down more often than we'd like to see if someone's eating that frequently. I'm not saying that's not a good situation for some people out there. There might be a, you know, a health condition where that makes a lot of sense for them. But for most people, I would encourage them not to be nibbling or grazing throughout the day because it really does affect that baseline glucose level in your system. And then that's going to make just more work for that insulin pancreas system as well. Yes. So with all of that said, where does insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity come in? Like where can all of this kind of go wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people like, okay, I get it. We, We eat food, it gets absorbed, glucose gets high in our bloodstream. Like what's the problem, right? Like where does everything go awry? Um, and so what we know is that, again, if the, the idea is homeostasis, right, if we're trying to keep that amount of glucose in your bloodstream constant, then too, if we have fluctuations that are going too high or too low too, too often, we'll say, so either extremes in the amounts of blood glucose and or too frequent fluctuations, then that is what we think of leads to insulin resistance. So in short, repeatedly high glucose is going to cause... Um, chronically high insulin, right? So if you think about like that bouncer that I talked about, the guy that's helping the glucose get into the cells, if there's always glucose in the bloodstream, then that in- your pancreas is going to over time just be repeatedly producing more and more insulin in order to help glucose get into the cells. And over time, what happens, and we don't know a whole lot, we'll talk about this in a second, we don't exactly know why, but these cells stop responding to insulin. And this is where we call this insulin resistance. Again, there's a number of theories as to why this develops, and and most include some combination of inflammation, excess adiposity, family history, exercise, diet. But what we do know is that it's more than just fluctuating glucose levels. There's a combination of reasons why your body's cells can stop responding to insulin. 
But meanwhile, the cells aren't getting the glucose. So these organs are like, hold on, we need more glucose. The insulin isn't getting that to us. So they tell the pancreas to make more insulin, right? We need more bouncers. The bouncers aren't keeping up to speed with letting people into the club, essentially. And so they're telling the pancreas, we need more. So the pancreas is producing more insulin, despite the fact that there's still plenty of glucose around, but the insulin isn't actually doing its job. So the bouncers are off taking a nap or something, right? So they're not actually helping the glucose get into the cells. Eventually, the pancreas can't keep producing as much insulin, and yet blood sugar keeps rising. So that's really like the the long and short and what leads to what we call insulin resistance. So over time, the pancreas stops producing as much insulin because it's like, well, I can't I can't keep up with this. And then we have this cycle of dysregulation where you've got a lot of glucose and a lot of available glucose, but it's not actually getting into the cells because the insulin isn't doing its job and the cells aren't responding to the insulin. Awesome. Again, as such a clear explanation. And from what I understand, this is insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity, how insulin sensitive you are, how insulin resistant you are is kind of a spectrum. It's not necessarily like an either or. Is that kind of what you find? Yeah, absolutely. It's also, I think it's reversible, right? So a lot of people think um, once they have this diagnosis of insulin sensitivity, which a lot of times and again, we could talk about this, but your hemoglobin A1C might be something that someone gets a lab back in or told that they are insulin resistant, right? That they have this problem with insulin sensitivity. And I think it's something that you can absolutely change in reverse and or could continue to get worse, right? So it is not necessarily a, a stamp of a diagnosis that once we, you know, your body is insulin resistant, then it's never going to change. You can absolutely improve it and it can get worse. So it's definitely a spectrum for sure. Yeah. What what are the issues that insulin resistance causes? Like, why is this a problem? Why is this a health problem um, right. chronically over time? Yeah, that's an important question, right? Because all of this science talk, people are like, okay, great. What, is this, what does this yes. mean to me, right? Um, and I would start with, for that reason, in terms of like, what does this mean for you? Most notably that like, when that glucose can't get into your cells, remember, we didn't talk about this, but, but we think of glucose as your body's fuel source, right? It's your body's, technically speaking, your body's preferred fuel source. There are other sources of fuel and we can use other sources of fuel. But when we talk about quick and easy you know, functions for your body, then glucose is what your body wants to be using as fuel. But if that insulin glucose system isn't working very well, then you can't actually get the glucose into the organs. So despite eating carbs, despite eating as much sugar or as little as you think you are eating, you might constantly feel fatigued or brain foggy. You can't recover from workouts. You're chronically craving sugar because your cells aren't actually getting the fuel that you're consuming. So I would say that that is sort of like when I speak to to women and to men about what's going on with insulin sensitivity, that's a biggie in terms of what people are feeling. When we talk more about health issues, another reason could be that insulin resistance when excess glucose is in the blood stri- in the bloodstream, it's damaging to organs. So when we have a lot of glucose around that can't actually get into the cells, then that's what we would consider contributing to inflammation. So that's absolutely, there's research to show that that excess glucose in the bloodstream is a problem for the body. The next reason I would think of is that similarly, excess insulin 
in the bloodstream tells the liver and the muscles to store more and more glucose as fat, right? So again, like we talked about earlier, when you have a lot of insulin that's high in the bloodstream and you've got this glucose, then your body's getting this message. There must just be too much around. So we're going to store more fat as, uh, you know, in addition to that glycogen. And then you end up with fat in organs where there shouldn't be a lot of fat. And we know this is a big issue um, with metabolic disease and diabetes, but we're also finding out that this is a determinant of things like Alzheimer's, dementia, high blood pressure, and cardiovascular disease. I would say most notably, Alzheimer's and dementia are some that are getting a lot of press right now as far as insulin sensitivity being linked to those two diseases. Some of your listeners might have heard that Alzheimer's is being considered type 3 diabetes now. And so they're finding out even something like cardiovascular disease, where we always thought it was about fat. And that is a conversation. It's not an either or here, y'all. It's it's a both. And But there is definitely an element of, of insulin resistance that is leading to a lot of these conditions that we didn't realize was playing a role before. The next thing I would consider would be that we lose what we call metabolic flexibility. And we're not able to switch between sources of fuel as a problem with insulin resistance. And you did an awesome job of talking about this. I went back and looked, I think it was episode 121, where in your podcast, you talked about what we mean by metabolic flexibility. And when we talk about insulin resistance, how that plays a role in metabolic flexibility. So I would certainly encourage people to go listen to that. And then personally, in my specialty, I deal with women in perimenopause and dealing with hormone and digestive issues. And I see insulin and glucose having a huge effect on hormones. So especially as it relates to hormone metabolism and regulation, when we have high insulin, that can lead to excess testosterone, which then can then lead to conditions like PCOS or estrogen dominance. That can also play a role with that insulin affecting sex hormone binding globulin. When there's fluctuating blood sugar too often, this can suppress progesterone production. And this is a big issue with healthy, active women that I know you and I both work a lot with. Uh, and when blood sugar le- levels are fluctuating, this can also raise estrogen levels for men. So there's a lot of different roles that that insulin sensitivity and resistance conversation have as it relates to hormones. Again, even in the conversation around thyroid and the thyroid conversion that happens in the gut, this can be affected by insulin resistance. So there's a number of issues that we now know are linked to insulin resistance that we want to make sure that we're doing our best to avoid. Yeah, it sounds like kind of a root issue type of deal. Yeah, right. Like sure. If you can get at that, you might be able to tick a bunch of other boxes as far as your health. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would say so. What I think is maybe someone listening might be like, well, you know, I'm not overweight. I, I'm i probably insulin sensitive, but you can be lean and be insulin resistant, correct? Because I, I feel like I've had a, some level of insulin resistance in my past. I had, I can identify with the brain fog that feeling hangry all the time, feeling hungry constantly, not sleeping well. Um, I know that had to do, but I was lean. And so I wonder if that had more to do with my lifestyle, right? The overexercise, the stress, the not sleeping, the burning the candle at both ends. So can you speak to that? Like, can someone be lean and still be insulin resistant? For sure, 100%. So again, we're talking about how your body uses fuel. And while that can affect fat storage, it it 
sort of in its core, doesn't have anything to do with your body shape or size. So we see insulin resistance a lot of times, and and I think probably you do as well. I do certainly with very healthy, lean, active women. I know Shannon, I've told you before that personally, I was given a diagnosis, diagnosis of insulin resistance back, I think it was after my first child, when my blood sugar was high, my hemoglobin A1C was high. I was eating what I considered to be a perfect diet. I was doing really, you know, eating really clean and healthy. I was exercising plenty and I dug into all of the science and realized that it was actually that excess exercise and my paired with my too clean of a diet that was leading to insulin resistance. So I think, and we'll talk about why that actually happens, but I would say different layers in terms of fitness or stress on your body can absolutely play a role with insulin resistance. And that is something that not all people would assume is going on if they aren't necessarily overweight or they aren't dealing with like chronically craving sugar, although that is a common symptom. So for sure, it can be, you know, it can affect a number of people independent of their body shape or size. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us the other symptoms that you might be insulin resistant. We talked about the brain fog, the craving sugar. What are the other ones? I would say one, a few that I see a lot would be post-meal fatigue. So kind of if you are someone that feels like you eat a meal that's a normal size, let's say it's not Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas or something, and you are chronically feeling like you could take a nap after that meal, then that is a sign that you might not actually be getting the fuel from that food that you just ate. So that's something that I I point to a lot when people are talking to me about, could this be an issue for them? I, the other part of that would just be like constantly feeling fatigued. So again, if that glucose can't actually get into the cell, no matter what you're eating, you're not actually able to get that fuel in, in a usable form. So certainly fa- generally fatigue, but especially right after a meal would be something Another one might be always feeling hungry or hanger, as a lot of us can experience, um, despite eating enough. And I would say there's a little bit of nuance with all these. And for sure, any of these could be other things going on as well. But things you know that do point me to think about blood sugar would, would be someone that who's, I eat a normal size meal and I still can't seem to get enough. I'm never quite satiated or I always need something sweet. I feel like my cravings for sugar are going up and down throughout the day despite eating carbs. The one thing I would say as sort of a caveat for that is that I work with a lot of women, and I think Shannon, you've seen this as well, who aren't eating enough and might complain, well, I'm I'm always craving carbs, but sometimes it's because you're not actually getting enough fuel, period. So I, the first, first thing to make sure of is that you're eating enough of your macronutrients. And then if you're like, I'm, I am, I've checked, I've looked, and we've got a number of conversations about how to make sure you're doing that. But if you are, and then you're still feeling like your hunger levels are sort of out of control, then that could be a, a sign that your blood glucose is out of control. And then the other biggie that I see a lot is anxiety or mood swings or irritability. And again, number of reasons for these types of um, issues could could be going on for sure. But as it relates to blood sugar, I, I would I would assume a lot of us can experience or can relate to experiencing feeling hangry or feeling super irritable if we were really hungry, right? Like, I mean, have you ever had an occasion where you were like, 
I'm starving and therefore I am like the pistiest version of myself ever. Oh my gosh. So yeah. <laughs> right. So you can imagine. So bad. And it was like my poor, my poor husband was like, oh my gosh, we gotta, we gotta carry snacks because we can't have this. Yeah. Would call her Sharon because she was like the worst. <laughs> and I'm out. Yeah. It's like, it's like you become a different version. You become like a monster. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I see it myself, like if little things you know, piss me off more than they would otherwise. I'm like, something might be going on with my blood sugar. It's like almost like a sign for me to like make sure that I'm checking in with that. But yes. I would say as well, it's some of my clients who come to me and they're like, I can't leave ho- the house without a snack. I've got to have a snack on me at all times. And some of that is just habit and some of it, you know, is fear. But there might also be some blood sugar issues going on if you're feeling like your moods are, are you know, changing you know, quickly or too fast for what you typically experience. Some of the more common symptoms that people start to feel when it gets, you know, a little more out of control would be frequent urination, certainly weight gain or weight loss, uh, slow healing of wounds. I see skin issues. I do see acne for sure related to blood sugar um, and then some other skin issues as well. And then sleep. And this is a biggie. And and we can talk about this all day long, but certainly falling asleep, having trouble falling asleep or waking up in that sort of middle of the night, 2 to 3 a.m. hour can be a sign that your blood sugar is dropping overnight and actually causing some alarms to go off and waking you up. And that, especially if you're someone who's like, I ate a normal, healthy size dinner, it felt really balanced and I'm still having these issues of waking up in the middle of the night, then it could be that your glucose just isn't being utilized properly. Yeah. Excellent. How can being insulin resistant affect your fitness results? Because I, back before I started Evlo and I was over-exercising, I was still, you know, I think there was a lot of a lot of reasons why I couldn't build muscle, partly because I probably wasn't getting enough protein. But yeah. you know, I was lifting the heavy weights, I was doing all the right things, um, and just not recovering. My body felt like it was falling apart. Many of many of the listeners know my story, so I won't get into that too much. But can you speak to how insulin resistance can affect what you're doing in the gym and the time that you're putting into your workouts? Yeah. So muscle actually has more insulin receptors than any other tissue in our body. And I know you know that, but for sure, when we talk about insulin resistance, if your muscles aren't getting glucose, then they aren't going to be able to function either. So you can have all of the appropriate amino acids that you need, right? All of those mTOR triggering amino acids that we get from protein. And if you don't still have available glucose, whether that's coming from stores or from your food, then you're not going to be able to build muscle. So uh, that's a biggie. No no question that someone might actually be under fueling in that sense, but also just not able to use the glucose for muscle building and muscle storage as we'd like to see. Um, I would also say like energy for sure. We talk about sort of, you know, a lot of a lot of the women I work with are going to work out almost no, not, I wouldn't say no matter what, but they, they are committed to moving their body in some way. Um, some healthy and some unhealthy for sure. But, uh, you know, a lot of times someone might just be dragging and feel like they need to do their workout anyway. You're excellent, Shannon, at talking about taking recovery and rest weeks and not everyone does a good job of listening to that. So if someone is really like insulin resistant and they're not actually getting the fuel that they need, then they're not going to be able to exercise efficiently or in a way that's actually going to build muscle. They're going to have sort of half-ass their workout, if you will and not be able to actually like put in the work that's going to see change. Those are two things I think of. I'm sure you could think of more 
um, as it relates to exercise and how that condition could affect exercise. Well, yeah, it's like a it's like a checking the box situation instead of actually putting in quality effort, yeah. which we know is important when it comes to muscle growth, is getting significant fatigue to the muscle. And if you're exactly. tired and you're gassed and you're on E, yeah. it's going to be really difficult to put in the, the amount of effort required to give your muscle that stimulus for growth. So I think Absolutely. that, I mean, that's for sure. I, I'm just, as we're talking, I'm just realizing yeah. more and more, wow, I think I was there years yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can think of so many workouts where like I just pushed through and was definitely not getting to failure and was not really working my muscles, but doing oh. it because I thought I should. And again, looking back, you're like, oh, probably because I had no fuel on board. <laughs> Body was yeah. like, hey, could you, could you help me out here? Yes. And then the whole issue snowballs, right? Because then you right. get your workout, you're exhausted and you're hangry and mm-hmm. you are, you know, stressed and it, it's further depleting you and it affects sleep and how much you're eating and oh. you just want to eat the whole pantry and <laughs> and then you're cranky because you ate the whole pantry and then it's just right. like... Now so, you're on a blood sugar roller coaster and you're still exactly. not actually getting that glucose into your organs where you need it. Yes. Okay. This is so, I think a lot of people can probably identify with this if they're not there right now, maybe at some point in their past. I think it's really common because I think it's, you know, it's what the fitness industry and the diet industry has recommended for so long. You know, eat the six yeah. small meals a day, work as hard as you can in the gym, burn the candle at both ends. It's kind of like our hustle American culture that. Yeah. really is breeding insulin resistance for a lot of mm-hmm. people and thinking that yeah. they're doing all the right things when really they're setting their body up for this snowball effect. Absolutely. We so what, what can we do then? So let's say someone identifies with some of this stuff. What can we do to improve insulin resistance? And even if you're on a spec, on because if we see it mm-hmm. as a spectrum, everyone yeah. can probably working be working towards improving their insulin sensitivity. So what can we do to to get up on the right track? Yeah. Um, and this is my favorite, right? Is is sort of practical. What do I do about it? Like there's thank you. You've explained why I should be concerned and what might be going on, but what do I do about it? And we know there's a number of things that affect blood sugar. And at the top of that list, I, you know, would be remiss not to say that I do think it is the most important piece is food. And so we will come back to that for sure. But I I actually love to focus on a lot of the non-food pieces because, again, like I, I shared with my story, I don't think it had a whole lot to do with food. I think it had more to do with lifestyle and mental health and stress. And I see this pattern where where people are sort of obsessing over food and blood sugar, and, and we can talk about CGMs later, but really getting into like trying to be as careful as possible about what they're eating and completely ignoring the whole lifestyle piece that might actually be affecting their blood glucose even more than we realize. So a number of things can affect it. The The big ones on my list would be sleep. I know I just mentioned it a second ago, but there's actually studies coming out regularly and certainly plenty already to show us that even just one night of sleep can affect blood glucose levels. So one night of poor sleep can actually cause your blood sugar to be fluctuating more frequently throughout the day than it would if you had had a good night of sleep. And I think we we finally have this research about why a lot of us can feel crummy after a bad night of sleep or feel like we have no willpower, right? If you have a terrible night of sleep and you wake up and you're craving all the things, and it, and it really doesn't have to do with your willpower at all. It has to do with the fact that you are probably sort of starting out on a more of a blood sugar roller coaster because of that poor sleep. So 
you're a big fan, I'm a big fan, go to bed, figure out how you can get more sleep because it makes such a big difference with this aspect as well. Uh, Another big one is stress of any kind, whether it's physical stressors or mental or perceived stress. So what, how that happens is stress actually triggers your adrenal glands. And I would imagine, I don't know when, if you've talked about, I'm sure you've talked about your adrenal glands plenty on this show, but your adrenal glands, right? Your two little organs that um, help manage stress. When, when stress is high, release hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. And both of those hormones are, are actually glucose stimulators. So they basically recruit glucose to be increased in the bloodstream and they also inhibit insulin's effects. So this is another one of those, why does insulin sensitivity even or resistance even develop? Could be in part and large, you know, probably is in part because of stress. So anything that's triggering your adrenal glands to work more actively is going to increase your the glucose in your bloodstream. So again, this is why a lot of women or men are trying to like obsess over fixing their blood sugar and their their stress in fixing their blood sugar might actually be causing their blood sugar to fluctuate more frequently than they realized. Again, I've seen this myself in that a, a stressful client or a stressful situation or a meeting that I had to enter actually raised my blood sugar more than a meal I had previously that wow. day. So stress has a real impact on um, on what our blood sugar does. And in the same vein, again, I mentioned it could be perceived stress, like me worrying about an upcoming meeting or conversation or something, or just opening an email at the wrong time, right? Any of those things can raise your blood blood sugar. We could say that sleep might actually be raising your blood sugar for the same poor sleep might be doing the same thing because it's a stressor on your body. Similarly, high-intensity exercise Um, And again, we can talk about the nuances of this, but that is a stressor on your body. And so what it does is actually tells the adrenal glands like, hey, this person's running from a tiger and we need more glucose to be in the bloodstream and available and to be used when you might be like, well, my, my workout was only, you know. 45 minutes of hit workout at this local gym that I go to. And that's throwing your blood sugar through the roof. So I do see exercise as a big cause of blood sugar dysregulation because people don't realize how much that high intensity exercise is actually affecting their their blood glucose. And I think you've done a good job of talking about this in terms of the the flip side of that would be working on more muscle building, low intensity exercises, exercise exercising in a way that supports your nervous system so that you're not, you know, pairing both, you know, mental and physical stress at the same time can all be huge pieces of that puzzle. Um, I would say the other thing as it relates to lifestyle would be time of day that you're eating. And I guess this is a little bit diet related too, but hugely variable from person to person in terms of, you know, a lot of people do find that they are more sensitive to glucose in the evenings. I also work with plenty of people who who are more sensitive to glucose in the mornings. So when you're eating, as we talked about how frequently you're eating, and we can get into this more and we talk about suggestions, but those can all affect blood sugar too. So again, lots of different pieces of the puzzle, maybe stress and sleep and exercise are the biggies that I have people really take a hard look at and evaluate for themselves in terms of like, am I am I doing something in any one of these categories that might actually be raising my blood sugar and not supporting my body and using glucose appropriately. Yeah. I want to, I want to focus on the exercise piece just for a second, Mm -hmm. because I think that a lot of people 
are hesitant to give that piece up if they are doing too much. But again, I think that, and we're not saying that like high intensity exercise is bad. It can be awesome. It's just that dosed, it needs to be dosed appropriately. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like if you're going to your 45 minute, 60 minute boot camp classes, you know, three, four, five, six, seven times a week, that's probably going to be overly stressful on your body and put you into this insulin resistant kind of snowball. So it's not, so I think, you know, it's a lot of what I try to do is convince people that less can be more and that because they're afraid to let that go. They're afraid that, well, if I let that go, that I'm not going to see results. And it actually could be the opposite, right? Because if you are more insulin sensitive, your body can utilize that glucose better. You can build new lean tissue better. You can utilize fat stores better. So it's like, I think like just mentioning that we're not saying never uh, exercise intensely, just do it with the proper doses. And I always say like, two 15-minute hit sessions alongside yeah. your strength workouts and your low-intensity cardio is really all you need. Yeah. I I mean, you do a great job of talking about that in that it it's not an either-or, right? So again, I'm not everyone knows me here, but like I absolutely am not saying hit is bad for us, but I do think we do it too much. And then we become sort of mentally dependent on it as our source of of fitness and that we need to be doing it, right? So I, I think you and I both see a lot of men and women who feel like they can't get out of that cycle because they get such quote unquote benefits from it. And that's great. But I also am big on like, let's see what this, what's the minimum amount we can do and most efficient amount of workout we can do that's still going to give you that mental benefit, but not cause damage to your body. So I do think a lot of people are are exercising excessively when we think about that hit category and sort of the amount of time people are putting into that category versus more of the muscle building intensity type stuff. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of people are addicted to the feeling that they get after, or it's a way for them to kind of work through some emotional physical or um, some emotional stressors as to work really hard in their workouts. But I like to challenge people to think about, okay, let's look at what's happening through to your body throughout the day, not just in that hour, two hour period afterwards, or even during your workout. How is this affecting you throughout the rest of the day? Are you cranky? Are you hangry? Are you overeating Mm -hmm. because you're starving because your body is feeling like it is in this fuel deficit all the time? Um, And is that, is that actually helping you? I think is the question I like to ask people, like look at your life overall, not just in those short periods during and after your workout and see, okay, even though this is like alleviating some stress for me temporarily, is it actually causing and layering in more stress into my life? Right, right. And you know, I would argue the answer is probably yes, but only for everyone to evaluate. And it, it takes yeah. time, right? I would say it's hard to make that transition in that I have a lot of clients who now would agree like an hour long walk is just as like even more mentally like recovery for myself. Like I get away, I get for those of you who are like moms and dads, that time time exercising is sometimes their only time alone, right? Or only time yeah. away from their children. And that's huge. But it doesn't have to be done in a way that's then causing more damage on the back end. So I yes. do think it, but it, it's a transition. And it, especially for people who love that type of exercise, it, it's not an overnight change. Like neither you nor I would say, just stop doing it right away because yeah. it's going to be hard to do. So really 
trying to figure out like, what if I just tried it? Like, what if I tried doing a long walk and then 15 minutes of exercise and see what that feels like instead? Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, it's not like you have to keep with that routine forever. It's like, right. We always kind of, I always rec- recommend people see their bodies as science experiments and test things. And it's mm-hmm. not that even though you try something, it doesn't mean that you need to stick with it forever. It doesn't mean, right. mean you're going to lose all your progress overnight. Right. Um, and you can always gain it back, even if you do lose some progress. So yeah, I think it's not a zero sum game. Like we sometimes frame it in our minds. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there's a, we had talked, I talked about lifestyle factors and I wanted, since we're talking about muscle building to mention a few physical factors as well that can affect blood sugar. And some of these are because of lifestyle, right? So there's, there's a back, it's not an isolated category next necessarily, but the first that I would think of is the amount of lean body tissue. So like I mentioned before, the more muscle you have, the more efficient your body is going to be at using glucose. So that is certainly a great reason to be strength training. Um, sex hormone production is a big you know, piece of the puzzle as it relates to blood sugar, especially for you females where you are in the month. And I think that is really important to know and to learn about your cycle and to understand how you can not necessarily eat within your cycle, but to understand where you are and how exercising and eating based on that might be, there might be ways that you could support yourself better. The amount, independent of the amount of muscle, we would also say the amount of body fat that someone has because we know that body fat can interfere with insulin signaling. So that does play a role. And then the last one that I love to talk about is digestive health. So there's actually gut bacteria that can extract more glucose from food than other gut bacteria. There are a number of ways that the gut microbiome, which is basically that combination of bacteria in your gut can affect glucose absorption and processing. And so that's a another piece that might be, you know, more nitty gritty for someone that already feels like they've checked off a lot of those first boxes, but something to look into. Yes, absolutely. Can we stay on the muscle thing for a second? Because everyone yeah. knows I love muscle. <laughs> yeah. Why does that, why can that help you be more insulin sensitive, having more lean mass? Because again, glucose, or from what we know, muscle has more insulin receptors than any other tissue. So we think of it as the most efficient organ at utilizing glucose. So generally speaking, the more muscle you have, the more you're going to be more more quickly, more efficiently, you're going to be able to use the glucose that comes in from your food and your bloodstream or that comes in from stress or anything else, right? So you know, just baseline, not even during exercise, but having more muscle is going to help you be more insulin sensitive in that way. What's more, I would say that having more muscle is going to then offset how much fat tissue you have, which, you know, obviously would affect ends, like I just mentioned, can affect insulin signaling as well. So certainly that that muscle has a number of ways that it helps use glucose more efficiently is probably the easiest way to say that. Love, love it. That's why I always recommend use your workouts Frame your workouts as muscle building tools instead of fat burning tools because when you have the muscle, it's going to help you be more efficient at using fat throughout your day. That's right. And and using glucose, right? So again, second to that would be using fat and using glucose, which is huge. Love it. So let's switch gears and talk about eating and nutrition. How does nutrition play into this? Because I know it's a big part of creating insulin resistance or or improving insulin sensitivity. So can you speak to that? Yeah. 
So obviously, like I mentioned, food food is huge, right? Because food does affect, I mean, yes, while stress and some of the other things affect how much glucose is in your system, the, the biggest piece of the puzzle is how, you know, what you're eating. Um, I would say layers that affect blood glucose would be what carbs you consume. So, and that's different for each of us, but like the actual type of carb actually might affect someone differently from one person to another, the order in which you eat food. Um, so including, do I eat my protein first or my carbs first can affect how your body pulls glucose into the bloodstream, how much protein you have, how much fiber is in there, and then how processed the carb is. So all of those pieces of the puzzle can absolutely affect how much glucose ends up in your bloodstream and therefore how much insulin you have to keep producing. And I, I would stop for a second and say that I think sometimes people have a fear of any change in blood glucose. So again, someone that's listening to this might already be like, I know all this. This is all things that I've learned. And blood glucose is something that's kind of a hot topic right now. And while the goal is to keep that blood gl glucose in a certain range, I also want to see some rise and fall after meals. So I do think, again, we can get a little perfectionist when it comes to blood glucose and sort of shoot for this like never changing flatline glucose level. And I like to remind people that it's it's normal and healthy for your blood glucose to go up slightly after you eat a meal. So rather than being afraid of that, that is a normal response and one that is almost necessary in order to then get that glucose into the cells where we need it to. But what we're looking for is sort of rolling hills rather than, you can see me, Shannon, but rolling hills rather than mountains and valleys as it relates to your blood sugar. So what when we talk about food, one of our goals is not that there's no rise and fall, but that we keep that rise and fall within a certain range and that it is more like that rolling hills from what you're eating rather than high peaks or peaks that stay high for that matter. Uh, as it relates to food, sorry, did you have a question on top of that? No, no, I'm, I'm here with you. Yes. Keep okay. going. As it relates to food, I would say the big things that I say first and foremost is to focus on fiber. Um, so fiber, especially from starchy veggies, from all types of vegetables, from fruit, from legumes, especially. And this doesn't mean that you can't choose any food, right? But that fiber, the fiber content of food is going to be help your body digest more slowly, and that's going to minimize that glucose spike. So the amount of fiber in a food makes a big difference in how much your body will spike from that particular food. I would say second to that would be minimizing processed carbs, right? So similarly, like if we're focusing, I'm always, I'm always intentional about what we're adding first. So I want everyone to hear like focus on fiber. And then second to that would be to minimize those processed carbs. And that, you know, we would think of your white breads or your sugars, those types of foods, the more highly refined carbs are going to spike your glucose faster than something that is a whole food based of a carbohydrate or that has fiber in it. So those two would go hand in hand. I, I usually say something um, to the effects of never have a naked carb. So that includes whether it's a glass of wine crackers, chips, dessert, candy, or an apple. I always want you to pair your carbohydrates with protein and fat and ideally get more of the protein and fat than you are of the carb because that will slow down the absorption of the glucose and how quickly your body gets that glucose. Second to that and sort of paired with that would be to prioritize protein. And you and I both love to talk about protein. It is incredibly helpful for health. Uh, not only does it balance blood sugar from carbs, but it also helps 
slow the absorption of glucose. And then we know that having adequate protein helps you build that muscle that then is going to make you more insulin sensitive, right? So there's a number of reasons that protein is a big piece of the puzzle. I talked earlier about the order of carbs. And so I do think while this can be sort of like phase two, it's important for people to know that the order in which they eat can affect their glucose um, and how high that glucose goes. So I always recommend starting a meal with protein or fiber, either or both of those rather than your carbohydrate source. And no, I don't want you eating like a toddler and spreading your food out on your plate, but at least getting a little bit of those protein or fiber pieces of your meal first before you have carbs. I know I used to snack on like crackers or chips while I was cooking dinner. And now I'm intentional about if I'm, if I need a snack, I try not to, but I'm going to have something like cheese or nuts um, that's going to help stabilize my blood sugar rather than spike it before I go into that meal. And then I would say the timing of meals. So we talked about this a little bit before. At, at a baseline, like you don't want to start eating at a time when your blood glucose is already high, right? Because then you're going to end up putting yourself at risk for an either even higher spike of glucose. So that's where when we talk about, you know, eating those six meals a day is like you mentioned earlier in the conversation, Shannon, or I'm a big fan of trying to get three to five hours between meals, depending on the person, to give your digestive system some downtime and to allow your body to reset. And, and that includes resetting insulin. So we want insulin to come back down. One of the ways that we could test for insulin sensitivity is a fasting insulin. And when that number is too high, we know that your insulin isn't coming back down. We want that insulin to come back down to zero, ideally, so that it's got some time to kind of recover and your pancreas has some rest time. And then when you eat a meal again, it can go back up to an appropriate level rather than starting at an elevated level. So spacing out your meals makes a big difference for sure. And then I would say there's a there's a little bit of a nuance here, and this is going to be person by person, but how how often you eat such that you don't go so long between meals that your blood sugar is dropping excessively low. And this could be the case for some of the healthy active population who's trying to stretch to that five to six hour window and they're getting a blood sugar drop, which oftentimes means when you eat, your blood sugars can go high faster because your body's like, food, thank you, right? Here it is. We've been waiting for this glucose. So there's a little bit of a, a dance that we have to figure out with with clients and with each of you as to how far between meals you can go that allows your body to, to have that reset, but not so far that you get into an extremely low glucose level for someone. So what would be some indications that you're eating in the correct windows? Like, do you want to let yourself get hungry, but not like that like exhausted, right. angry, hungry, or or when when do you know, or how do you know what the right window of time is for you? Yeah, that's hard. There, that is not um, a one size fits all for sure. Especially if there's a history of eating disorder or disordered eating, which a lot of us have, and around food, and so what what um, how scary it can feel to be hungry at times and not wanting to go there. Right? There's a lot of different layers to that question or that answer, at least. Um, I would say, you know, generally, again, I'm I'm encouraging people to shoot for three to five hours, and that's a big difference in there. But sure, I want someone to enter a meal feeling hungry, right? I want you to get to your next meal being like, I'm ready to eat, but not in that place like you mentioned, like hangry or irritable or pissy or like I have no control over myself right now. Those would be that would be too far if you would ask me. Um, and if someone feels like they're getting hungry at the two hour mark, then we might be looking at for sure changing what they're eating, but also 
supporting, you know, other ways that we could support blood glucose? And is there anything else we could do to make sure that those levels are as stable as possible to get you farther from that meal? Um, So I wish I had a better answer for that, Shannon, as far as like, here's the exact formula, but I would say not experiencing any of those negative symptoms from low or high blood glucose, but also like entering into a meal, being ready to eat and not, not necessarily being like, I'm so full, I could not eat for hours kind of thing. No, I think that's a really good way to put it because I think a lot of times we don't listen to our bodies until we're like mm-hmm. starving and like right. I need to eat right now. Yeah. But I think it yeah. forces people to slow down and like listen, like uh, on a scale of one to 10, how hungry am I right now? Um, right. And like kind of tap into that, which I think is could be really beneficial for someone than to choose foods that are going to fuel them properly based on their hunger right. levels and things like that. Right. I would say that um, that's so well said that the sort of like, you know, giving yourself a scale to check in on. I also feel like the anxiety sort of irritability piece tends to come up quickly for people as we as our blood sugar starts to go low, as well as brain fog. And while some people are like, I don't know what that means. I've never experienced that. But I would say if you're doing a task for work or even, you know, at home and it just feels really hard to focus, then that might be a sign that it is time to get a meal uh, the other thing that's sort of a random, but feeling cold can be another sign that your blood glucose is starting to dip, right? So if it's been long enough and your body is trying to like basically make its own energy, then sometimes people will notice I get really cold when I've fasted too long, when it's been too long between meals and it's time for me to eat again. Interesting. I know I, I have that symptom for sure. Yeah. So all of this is so good. I think we could keep going for another hour, but I want to wrap this up by asking how, if you're making these changes in lifestyle, diet, et cetera, how do you know you're on the right track? What will become kind of some of the first indications that you're taking the correct steps in the in the correct direction? Yeah. I would say a number of things. Um, feeling like you have energy throughout the day would be a biggie. So I'm I'm sleeping well, right? If we backed up even farther, like feeling like you're getting good sleep, you're you're waking up rested, and then your energy stays steady throughout the day. Now, again, t- not to be a perfectionist, like I don't want people to feel like I never have a low in my energy, right? And it's normal to have some dips in your energy throughout the day, but I don't want you to feel like you couldn't go on without taking a nap at two o'clock. So certainly feeling like your energy is, unless you're pregnant, unless you're Shannon, um, <laughs> if your energy is consistently high, then that would be, or, you know, normal, that would be something to look for. That concentration piece, so being able to focus on whatever task is at hand is a good sign that your blood sugar is stable. Um, not constantly craving sugar. And again, this one has a lot of nuance in terms of like, is it habit? Is it ritual? Is it something that I do all the time? Am I eating excessive sugar? But I don't want you to feel like if you're eating a normal healthy diet with some sugar and some carbs in it, and then on top of that, you're you're like, where are the Skittles? I need candy, right? Like that extreme sense of sugar um, would be a sign to me that your blood sugar might be unstable. Um, feeling satiated and satisfied after a meal. So again, that idea that I don't finish my meal and then like need to take a nap, but I also don't feel like chronically hungry. Like I can eat enough that is satisfying for me. Uh, Mood stability. We've talked about this a lot, but not feeling, I think anxiety is probably the biggest one where men and women will start to feel like unjustifiably anxious over things. And that can be a sign. And the flip of that would be like, I don't, things don't trigger me as quickly. I'm able to like 
you know, deal with a situation or walk into my house with all the clutter and not feel completely overwhelmed because my blood sugar is stable. Obviously, being able to build muscle would be a big one as it relates to Evlo members and make, you know, like I'm I'm putting in the work. I'm really doing this work to build my muscle and seeing the change from that would be a sign that these things are in the right direction. Uh, there's labs for sure. We didn't get into those um, or things like thyroid health or PCOS that are for sure related to blood sugar. So seeing improvements if someone did have any of those conditions. I love this. I think that you gave so much helpful, clear information, again, about a topic that seems to be a little cloudy <laughs> out there. So this was extremely helpful. I learned a lot. And I, I, if people are applying this and they're still feeling like they need some more one-on-one attention mm-hmm. or they just want to go deeper with you, how can someone work with you? Yeah, thank you. I would say whether it's me or another dietitian, you, you're a big fan. I'm a big fan. Like, get support. It's a great resource. Sometimes your insurance might cover it, but a lot of these, you know, issues are individual, right? So, what works for you? I talked about that as far as food goes. What works for me might not be the same thing that works for you. And my combination of stressors and how I'm supporting my body in that is going to be different for someone else. So if you can get some sessions with a dietitian to really help work through that, that can make a huge difference in even just understanding your body better and how to support your blood sugar. So I can be found at Catherine Andrew Nutrition on Instagram or Facebook. Um, I have a colleague as well that's taking new clients. I focus specifically on women between the ages of 35 and 55. So women in that perimenopausal range. Uh, But we have other practitioners that are excited to take on new clients. And then um, my website is katherineandrew.com. So either of those resources would be great to point people to, to come see us and work with us. And we love to to figure out all the different layers of health and really help someone make a plan that's going to be sustainable and and long-term for them. Yes. Y'all, I know a, a ton of Evelyn members have worked with Catherine and I have heard nothing but amazing things from everyone who has worked with you and your colleagues. So if you are on the fence about it, you will not regret it. It's an amazing investment in your time. And um, thank you, Catherine, for being here. This was excellent as always. And we will see you listeners next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.